0: Revelation four, Revelation four. Well, as we begin Revelation chapter four this morning, we cannot forget that we're in four because we've finished um the second section of Revelation, the things that are now going on. Remember, at the start in Revelation 119, uh, Jesus gave us gave John the outline for this message that he was sharing. He says, write the things which you have seen, the events of chapter 1, the things which are, or literally now going on, chapters 2 and 3, the things of the church, and then the third section, write the things which shall be hereafter, after the things of the the church. And so, by entering chapter four, we are now beginning that third and final section of Revelation, the events that are future to the things that concern the church. Now, we get here in chapter four, and immediately John's attention is arrested by sights and events that transfer him from the scene of Patmos to the scene in heaven. And, and, and from this point forward in the book of Revelation, uh, John's perspective will be from heaven, not from the earth. And so this transfer from earth to heaven, it paints a picture of our future when we will be transferred from earth to heaven, an event the Bible calls, or that we call the rapture. The Bible describes it. We call it the rapture. So chapter 4, we begin in verse 1. John says, "'And after this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven.'" And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up here, and I will show you things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So John here, he sees this open doorway into heaven. Now, the reason he sees it is because uh, Jesus is no longer there. We'll see that in a moment. But he starts off by saying, after this. Now, that is the same phrase as chapter 119, where the word hereafter is. It is two Greek words, meta, tauta. When Jesus finishes his message to the churches, he says, after these things, the things of the church, he says, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. The phrase behold there is an exclamation of vivid emotion. And and, and it would have to be something unique to draw his attention away from his glorified Savior. Prior to this point, he's all he's had is eyes for Jesus. Jesus has appeared in His glory. He's you know heard His voice. He has learned from Him. He's received these messages from Him. He's dictating them down and and uh, or uh, writing them down as Christ is dictating it to him. And and all his focus is there. So it would have to be you know pretty unique to draw his attention away from the glorified Savior. Well, he sees a door. That was open, the King James says, but literally it means having, uh, that was standing open. In other words, it had already been open before he saw it, and it had just been there standing open. And it says, standing open in heaven, or literally from the inside. In other words, John did not do anything to bring about this event. He did not open the door. Someone inside heaven had already opened the door and had been open this whole time. Now, Ezekiel, John the Baptist, and Stephen, they all saw heaven open while they were still on earth. But none of them describe it as a door. Is that significant? If it is, I have no clue how. However, what is significant is that the door had been open all this time. Why? Why is that significant? Because it shows that, that God's intent was to transfer John to heaven when the time was right. The door was always open, but when the time was right is when he would transfer John to heaven, and that time is now. For John says, when he notices this door was standing open, he says, the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up here. So the first voice, of course, is from Revelation chapter one, verse 10, when John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. This is Jesus's voice, the first voice that John heard in this whole experience. So the idea then is that Jesus is no longer, you know, he's no longer in front of John. Now, the idea of a voice sounding like a trumpet blast would be quite overwhelming, uh, but it would also be exciting, you know? Uh, when my oldest son was in the marching band, he played the clarinet. I would always comment to my wife how lackluster the brass sounded, particularly the trumpets, uh, because we expect trumpets to be exciting when they play. My other son, uh, he plays the trumpet, and, and it's exciting. Uh, and of course, a trumpet can be used subtly, but it takes incredible skill to do that. We tend to think of the trumpets as the things that are announcing, you know, certain sections of the song or, you know, culminations and things like that. So it would be overwhelming, but it would also be quite exciting. Well, I guarantee you it was exciting for John, especially when we see what Jesus says, because Jesus says to him, come up here, or literally, you must come up here, Jesus was no longer on Patmos with John. He's on the other side of the open door. Now, this might explain why John finally saw the open door, but what Jesus says is, come up here, and I will show you things which must be, which are necessary, which are inevitable. This has to take place here after. This is, again, two words in the Greek. It's a repeat of meta tauta. These things must happen after the things concerning the church. So, John now, when he's commanded by the Lord to come up here, it says, and immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. The word immediately means at once, directly. It is faster. It's a word that describes something faster than quickly or shortly, like Jesus said in Revelation one one, or what John explains in Revelation one one, when he says these things will quickly come to pass, the events of Revelation. Uh, these are not events that stretch out over long periods of time. These are events that happen in sequential order. We already established that when we did chapter one, and they happen rapidly. So John is just snatched up into heaven, you know, like that. We'll we'll get to a little bit more of that in other places in Scripture. But he says, I was immediately in the Spirit. Now, Ezekiel uses this phrase to describe the visions that God gave him. He would say, I was in the Spirit, and I saw things that were going on. He's in Babylon. He would see a vision of things going on in Jerusalem. Uh, And so, Every time John uses this phrase that I was in the Spirit in Revelation, it refers to the Holy Spirit transferring John to a different location to give him a vision of something. So where is John now? Well, it tells us, behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And who's sitting on the throne? The Lord. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. The Lord. And he was high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, his robe filled the temple. So John sees the Lord sitting on the throne here. Now you might be wondering, well, Pastor Will, if no man has seen God at any time, how could John see the Lord? I would, I'll, I'll make your question even stronger. How could uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Moses, and John all have these visions of God on his throne? Because all four of them did. Well, we will cover that when we get to verse three where John describes the Lord just like these other men did. I'll, I'll get to that then. But for now, I, I wanna stop here in verse two because I think it's important to address what happens to John and why it happens at this point in the letter of Revelation. I always take this time when I do the book of Revelation to talk about the rapture because I suggest that what John is experiencing here is what will happen to all believers at the end of the things now going on, the things of the church, an event that we call the rapture. So I'd like you to turn to two places in Scripture just to save them for now. We're not gonna go there just yet. But First Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because I will be going verse by verse through those passages. I'll be referencing quite a few other passages this week and in the weeks to come. Uh, it will be a little, slightly a little bit more of a topical Bible study in the sense, because I do think the, rapture, the topic of the rapture deserves some time. So as you're finding First Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 and kind of saving those spots, I want to talk about, well, how does the Bible explain this event called the rapture? Well, it explains it this way. Just as Pentecost marks the start of God's program for the church, the rapture marks the end of God's program for the church, okay? I'll explain. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. That's different than the one. I'm just going to briefly reference it, but I'd like you to at least read it along with me. 2 uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. And then I'm just going to read something from John 14 and then we will dig into um, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 shortly after that. But I want to read 2 Timothy 4 verses 1 through 5. The context here is... is Paul's about to die. He, he knows he's been, he's been arrested a second time. He is in prison. He is not, it's not in the house arrest like he had before. Now he's in the, the depths of a Roman prison. He knows he's going to be executed, believes he's going to be executed. Uh, he is shortly executed after this. This is very likely his last words to Timothy. Timothy was the pastor, his protege, his disciple, the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And he's writing to him. These are some of the last things he has to say to him. And he gives him this charge in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. He says, Therefore I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Why? For the time will come... When they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Paul predicts a specific time that signifies the end of the church's influence on earth. And in verse 5, he charges Timothy to be faithful to watch until that time, but watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and make full proof of your ministry. So the idea here is that Timothy, there's a time coming when your job, you're not going to be able to do your job anymore. No one wants to hear that job. The, The times will be radically different. But for now, you do your job and you watch faithfully until that day comes. Christians are exhorted to watch for this time at least in nine separate scriptures in the New Testament. Nine separate sections of scripture. What are we watching for? Jesus has returned to get us. In John chapter 14 verses 1 through 3, Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And since I go, it says if, but it's a first class clause, which means it should be translated since. And since I go to prepare and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. This is Jesus' first announcement of this promise that he would come back, not just to set up his kingdom, but come back for us And thus, the rapture is this. It is the first phase of Christ's return in which he resurrects all dead believers and transforms all living believers into their resurrection bodies for the purpose of escorting them to heaven to live with him forever, just as he promised. That's what the rapture is. That's the rapture. The first phase of Christ's coming in which he resurrects all dead believers, transforms all living believers into their resurrected bodies for the purpose of escorting them to heaven to live with him forever just as he promised. That's the rapture in a nutshell, all right? Now, I realize that as I I, I teach these things that there are some who might hear me, none of you probably, of course, but there are some who might hear me teach these things and go, oh, that rapture stuff, I don't wanna hear about that anymore. There is very popular these days to even say the rapture is not a biblical doctrine. Uh, there, There are mainline Bible teachers who absolutely reject this idea of the rapture. And they usually do so from two very common objections that I'll hear, either one or one of the other or both. The first common objection I hear to this idea of the rapture is that, well, this is a new idea. This is not something the church has always believed. It's a very modern idea. It doesn't have any historical basis. (laughs) That is a popular claim, but it is one without any historical evidence whatsoever. It has no historical evidence, that claim, at all. I'm gonna quote to you just three, three, uh, three quotations from early church leaders before 350 A.D., that where they very clearly mention the event that I just described to you. For example, Irenaeus, who was a senior pastor of the church in Lyon, modern-day France. In 180 AD, he said this, and I quote, when in the end the church will suddenly be caught up from this, he'd been talking about the great tribulation. When in the end the church will suddenly be caught up from this, it is said there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning nor will be. I want to quote to you from Tertullian, uh, a pastor at the church in Carthage in 210 A.D. This is what he said, and I quote, For who is there that will not desire while he is in the flesh to put on immortality and to continue his life by a happy escape from death through the transformation that must be experienced instead of death? Which Christian doesn't, doesn't want that? Which Christian doesn't believe in that? The idea is he's saying none. This is what they all believed back then. Victorinius in 303 A.D., he was the senior pastor in a church in Slovenia. And in his commentary on the book of Revelation, when he was speaking about the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments, he said this: For the wrath of God always strikes the obstinate people, and these shall be in the last time when the church shall have gone out of the midst. I mean, these are guys who are clearly looking for the return of Christ, clearly expecting the return of Christ as were their congregations. This is not a new idea. I could have read tons more to you. It was taught by those, in fact, who were the closest to John's writing of Revelation. This is what the early church believed. This is what, there were periods where large portions of the church ignored it, and they ignored a lot of other doctrines and set up a lot of other false doctrines. But to claim this is a new idea is not true. It has no historical basis. The second objection I hear to the rapture is, well, this word, the word rapture is never used in the Bible, to which I always immediately reply, yeah, neither is the word Trinity, but you believe that, do you not? Now, that being said, the word rapture is in the Bible. It is commonly argued today that Christians shouldn't believe in the rapture because the word, the actual word rapture doesn't appear in the Bible, but that is misleading at best and flat-out dishonest at worst because We do find the Bible in places. What places in the Bible do we find the word rapture? Well, the word rapture comes from a Latin word, so you're not going to find it in an English Bible, but a Latin translation of the Bible contains multiple words that refer to the rapture or the experience of the word rapture. It has the words rapio, rapier, rapiamu. All three are found throughout the New Testament. And they all mean to snatch or seize from one place to another. If we could put those three scriptures up there, uh, these are just three times that this word is used right there. First off, it was used to describe uh, how the Lord snatched Philip from Gaza and transported him to Azotus in Acts 8.39, where it says he was caught away, the Lord caught him away. Uh, Paul used it in 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 4 to describe his visit to heaven, where he says, I was caught up to the third heaven. And then Paul uses it again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 17, to describe the rapture, where he says, We who are alive and remain shall be caught up to be together with him. So this idea that, you know, the word rapture is not in the Bible. It's all there. You just have to have a Latin Bible in front of you. Now Why do we call it the rapture instead of the great catching away or the Greek word, the great harpazo? You know, why do we call it the rapture? I don't know. I just know that in English, though, we tend to like words that have Latin origins. For example, we have many words in our English language that have Latin origins that we use today and we think they're English. Words like extra, impromptu, intro, status quo, verbatim, and vice versa are all Latin words that we consider to be English terms, and they are not. So I don't know who eventually one day just said, it's called the rapture, and we all stuck with it. You can call it the harpazo, which is the Greek word that's used there. You can call it the great catching away, the great snatching away. I don't care what you call it, but it's in the Bible. Just because we've decided to call it the rapture in the same way we describe our God as the Trinity Neither would has to be in the Bible for it to be, in an English Bible, for it to be a thing that's taught. But it is in the Bible, it's just you have to go to a different language. So, now that we've established that, that rapture is a biblical term, so what places in the Bible teach about the rapture? Well, we, we already looked at Jesus' initial promise in John 14, verses 1 through 3. That initial promise is not about setting up his kingdom. He says, I'm going to take you to be where I am. Where is he? He's preparing a place for us in heaven. So he's not coming down to set up his kingdom. He's coming to take us to be with him. And that's what we find in these other two passages in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter four first. Now, to give you a bit of a a larger context to 1 Thessalonians 4, we need to look at the situation in the church at Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica was a city that Paul brought the gospel to on his second missionary trip when he first brought the gospel to Europe. But he and Silas, they were forced to leave the city because of riots after only a month of ministry. So when he's writing this letter, these people have been Christians for only a few months, and they've only had mature discipleship for three to four weeks. All right? Now, in those four weeks, three to four weeks, Paul and his ministry team, they discipled them on many topics, and he urges them to live out what they were taught in those three to four weeks in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, furthermore then, We beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God. When they came and they taught the scriptures to them in those three to four weeks, the Thessalonians, they received the word of the Lord wonderfully. They wanted to please the Lord. They wanted to obey the Lord. He says, in the same way that you did that, he says, so you would abound more and more. That's our exhortation. Keep doing those things. Do it more faithfully, you know. For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. You know, we taught you. So this idea here is that he's reminding them of things he already taught them, and he's encouraging them to abound, to be more faithful in these areas. Now, Paul gives further instruction on a few of those topics in chapter 4 and chapter 5, which means one of the topics Paul and his team covered in the short time that they were there in Thessalonica was the Lord's return, was the rapture. And it shows that teaching about the rapture is important. If you're gonna talk about it in the first three to four weeks that you're with believers, that's a pretty important topic then, wouldn't you think? Now, Paul here in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17 is responding to two questions the Thessalonians had concerning the Lord's return. Number one, what will happen to believers who've already died when Jesus returns? And then number two, What will happen to those who are still alive when Jesus returns? And so here's his answer. Verse 13. But I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, those who have died, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep, who have died in Jesus, will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. Paul continues his teaching on the timing and the purpose of the Lord's return in chapter 5. We'll get to that in the next few weeks. But the actual event of the rapture is explained in great detail in these five verses. So, what are the main features of this event called the rapture? Well, number one, verse 14 tells us that believers who have died will be resurrected. He says in verse 14, for if, and again, this is a first-class conditional clause of assumed reality, which means it should be translated since. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Do you believe Jesus died and rose again? That's a pretty important Christian principle, right? I mean, that's a pretty important part of our theology. You have to believe that to be saved, right? So he says, for since you do believe that, since you guys are solid believers, you believe that Jesus died and rose again, since that's true, he says, even so... In this same way, them that sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. So in the same way, a literal physical resurrection. Jesus was literally and physically raised from the dead, right? This was not some spiritual body. He was not a ghost floating around, right? He said, touch me, see that I'm flesh and blood, you know? He, he said, give me something to eat, you know? It was a real body, you know? It, he didn't put the food in his mouth and it didn't dribble out through the, you know, through the, through the mist, you know? It was a real physical body. So these believers who have died, for it says here, it says that even so them also which sleep in Jesus, these are not all the dead, these are only believers who have died, they will receive new bodies just like Christ had, okay? So that's the first part or feature of this event. Believers who have died, they will be resurrected. The second part of the event we see as we keep reading. It mentions that the Lord will bring them with him. Where is he going to? Verse 15. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. So he is coming, he tells us, he is bringing them with him And where is he coming? He is descending from heaven. He is exiting heaven and entering our world. The second aspect of this event called the rapture is that Jesus will return to our world. However, it will not be to set up his kingdom. It mentions here that we which are alive and remain, those who are left around on the earth, we've not died, okay? He will come to our world And we will not prevent those which are asleep. The word there, prevent, actually should be translated precede. We're not going to come before them. Why is that important? It's important for this reason. Jewish theology taught back then that there was a special blessing for those who were alive when the Messianic kingdom would be set up, that they would be especially blessed. Now, remember, if you look back in Acts 17, you can read it on your own time, Acts 17 verses 1 through 10 talks about the birth of the Thessalonian church. And you read, what did Paul do? Where did he go in those three to four weeks that he was there? It tells us, he went and he taught in the synagogues. So who are the primary makeup of the church in Thessalonica? They're Jewish. These are Jewish believers, primarily. I'm sure they're Gentile believers too, but primarily, these are Jewish believers, all right? So when Paul says, there is no special blessing for those who are alive at this time in in the sense of, you know, we're not going to precede them. We don't come before them in this. We're not above them in this, you know? But that those who are dead get their new bodies first. He is explaining to these Jewish believers, and they would understand it clearly, that this is different, a different return than the one to set up the Messianic kingdom. They would understand that, you know? And, and how do I know that they would get that? This is, diff- this is different than when Jesus returns to rule? Because we see evidence of it in their next question in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 1, they, have two, they now separate the coming of the Lord. Because Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 1, now we beseech you brethren concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and by our gathering together unto him. He separates them. Because they understood now. And so they had more questions. And so he explains. These are two separate things. They knew that now. And now he's going to go in further depth. So this is why, by the way, it's important when you study your Bible to understand the original listeners of the letter because otherwise you can, we can read our stuff into that and instead of understanding how they would, under, they would receive it. One, one of the goals of any Bible teacher is to say, how were the original recipients supposed to understand this letter? Because that's the only way you can come to a proper application of what they're being taught for us today. The applications may you know, be great you know, in the sense that we're living in different times, but the teaching is always the same. It's our job to understand that. And we will make a mistake concerning things like the rapture and other doctrines if we don't understand his audience. So Jesus' second coming will have two phases, one to gather the church and one to set up the kingdom, all right? So the second aspect here, the first one is all believers who've died will be resurrected. Secondly, Jesus will return to our world but not to set up the kingdom. It is to gather all believers, The third aspect of this event is that living believers will be snatched away to be with the Lord forever. Verse 16, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord no mention of setting up the kingdom at all, will be ever with the Lord. So the third aspect of this event is that living believers will be snatched away to be with the Lord forever. It says that the Lord will descend with a shout. The word there means a call of command. And I know exactly what he's going to say, exactly what he said to John in Revelation 4, come up here. <laughs> and those are the words I am waiting to hear every day, every day, every day. You know, people are like, oh, I'm hearing the sound of the trumpet. I'm not, I'm not looking for a trumpet. I'm looking for a voice that sounds like a trumpet with words I can clearly understand that says, You done. Come up here. <laughs> you done. <laughs> Your work is finished. It says that he will have the voice of the archangel. Uh, the way that's worded there, it, it actually literally means the voice of the chief of the angels. This doesn't mean Jesus is an archangel. It means he is the chief of the, of the angels. He is the king of the angels with the voice of the one who speaks. You know, how many times did angels speak and it totally freaked out the listeners, right? You know, totally, they, they were a mess physically, emotionally, right? When we're reading the scripture. Can you imagine what it'd be like when Jesus speaks? I think the whole world will stand still for a moment. He will also descend with, the Bible says, the trumpet of God. I'll I'll address this when we look at 1 Corinthians 15. And the dead in Christ shall rise, be made to live again first. John 5, 25, Jesus promised, predicted that the day will come when all those who are in the graves will hear the voice of the Son of God and they will come out of those graves and live. That's what's going to happen for all believers who have died in that day. And then, verse 17, we which are alive and remain, still here on the earth is what that means, left behind, we shall be caught up together. The word together means all at the same time. It's what, You won't have to get in line. You're not going to have to show your ID. You know, none of those things. It's just going to be boom. It says we'll be caught up together with them all at the same time in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So the rapture will take us to a place that's physically on the earth, but out of sight of the world. I, I think it's possible there may be, a, you know, a, maybe a couple radar planes that might pick it up, you know, a couple a couple things, you know, satellites that might pick it up, a blip of a bunch of, a bunch of objects in, in, in the sky all of a sudden, but I don't think we'll be there very long. Because it says, and so shall we ever be with the Lord, I will take you to be where I am, where I am. This is why Jesus returns in this event, to take us to be with him forever, to keep his promise, not set up his kingdom. Now, something you have to understand, therefore, as we looked at these three things, is that the first phase of the Lord's return, this rapture, it is inseparable with the resurrection of believers. You cannot separate the two. Those events are together. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 with me. 1 Corinthians 15. And I want to look at verses 20 through 23. Paul's teaching on the resurrection very clearly uh, equates it to the coming of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 20, it says. In First Corinthians 15:20, "But now is Christ risen from the dead, and he's become the firstfruits of them that slept, those who have died. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But here it is: every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, first and then who's next? Afterwise, afterward, they that are Christ's when, at His coming that's what it says, at his coming. So the rapture is synonymous with believers' resurrection, with Christians' resurrection. Now, okay, so we understand that. But what happens to us then? Does that mean we we like die on the way up and then we're raised from the dead? What happens to believers who are alive during the rapture? What happens to their bodies? Well, that's what 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 57 are for. Verse 51, behold, So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. That's an Old Testament promise that God gave. That's when this promise will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh death, where is your sting? Oh grave, where is your victory? It's non-existent. No, but it seems existent now because how many of you have experienced the loss of a loved one? remember when I first experienced the loss of a loved one. My grandmother went home to be with the Lord. And it was very emotional for our family. And and, uh, it was the first time me and my siblings had experienced something like that. And, you know, I was a pastor. It was the first funeral I'd ever done. And uh, so I kind of had to hold it together. But after it was all over, I went into the car and I just sat there and I wept. I wept for a good hour. I remember telling the Lord, I said, you're going to have to explain things, some things to me. I said, because this makes no sense. What I'm experiencing right now makes no sense to me. And as I read through my Bible right there in the car, you know, and I was, uh, my grandfather was in the military and so she had a, was in a, buried in a, in a military burial ground. And, and uh, I remember going through the word in my car, you know, and, and the Lord explained to me, this is never part of my plan, which is why you feel this way. I didn't I didn't design death. Death came by sin. And right now it seems like it's victorious, doesn't it, Will? And that's why you sense the wrongness of this. Don't let anyone ever tell you that death is a natural part of life. It's the most unnatural part of life there is. It was never designed for us to be that way. It's not natural. God designed us to be with him forever. And so it hurts. It's painful. You know, it seems wrong because it is wrong. This should not be the way things end. But it won't end that way. Because when this day occurs and we see all of of the, the saints alive, all those that you love that were in Christ, you know, you'll see them. And then it'll be, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? You lose. It doesn't end this way. You see, the strength of death is sin. That's what we we know, we see, we see the flaws, we see the failure, and the strength of sin is the law. It shows us this is what we deserve. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus conquered death, he conquered sin, he, he, he fulfilled the law for us, and therefore we are righteous in him. And on this day, the rapture is when we fully experience the fullness of that victory, when we will all stand together in our resurrection bodies that will never die. Now, as we read this passage here, we see two important things. Living believers will not die. Living believers will escape death at the rapture. Look at verse 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That is a very clear statement. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. So even though all will not die, all will receive a new body. How does that work? Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. The phrase there, in a moment, it, it's en atome in the Greek, and if that sounds like Adam, it's because that's where we get our word Adam from. And Adam, in uh, Greek learning back then, was considered the smallest form of matter, completely indivisible. Uh, we, of course, know that's not true now, uh, but the Greeks took that and used that word, therefore, to describe a smallest thing that could be. So when he says in a moment, he's saying in an indivisible amount of time, the smallest amount of time you can imagine, in the blink of an eye, a single blink of an eye, that is 100 milliseconds, one-tenth of a second. It's immediate. And isn't that exactly what Revelation 4.1 says, or 4.2 says? And immediately I was in the Spirit and I saw a throne in heaven. Immediately he was in heaven. The same exact timing that's described here. He says, at the last trumpet. Now, I said I would address this here. I will address it in full detail when we talk about when the rapture occurs. I like to spend about three to four weeks on the topic of the rapture. First, what is the rapture? Secondly, why is the rapture important? And thirdly, when is the rapture? So um, that's the part where everybody has fun. But hopefully the rapture occurs before then. But, But the idea here is I'll get into that when we talk about when the rapture is as we look at the different views that are out there and and I I will explain, you know, how I don't think it correlates to what some people try to correlate it to. But suffice it to say today, numerous times in Revelation, Jesus is called the first and the last, right? He's not called the first, second, seventh, eighth, ninth, twelfth, and the last. He's just the first and the last. To have a first and the last, you don't need anything in between. You just need two, all right? So, It's interesting that Jesus is called the first and the last because while this certainly is a statement of his eternal nature, when it mentions that his voice sounds like a trumpet, it does call to mind another part of Scripture that mentions a first and last trumpet, two trumpets, not seven, okay? In Numbers chapter 10, verses 1 through 2, Moses is instructed to make two trumpets of silver, all right? And what was their purpose? One trumpet was used to either signify the start or the end of a journey, and the other trumpet was used to gather the people together. And I would suggest to you, if you're trying to find any type of meaning in these trumpets, do not look to the seven trumpets of Revelation. There's another time that seven trumpets are mentioned, not first and last, but a seven trumpets are mentioned, and that's with Jericho. You can do the studying on your own and do that. I'll share it in a few weeks if the Lord tarries. So it's more appropriate if we're looking at two trumpets to correlate to the two trumpets of the Old Testament, not the seven of the Old Testament or the seven of the New Testament. That is where you will confuse things. So Jesus, I would suggest to you, blew the first trumpet on the day of Pentecost, the start of the church's journey, the day that he sent the Holy Spirit to empower us to go out and make disciples of all men, the start of the church's work, right? Right? If the rapture signifies the end of the church's work, then I would suggest to you that his voice is the blowing of that second or last trumpet at the rapture, the day of gathering us together, the end of the church's journey, the end of our task to make disciples of all men, right? That makes the most sense. So when it talks about the last trumpet here, it's not the seventh trumpet of Revelation. It is The two trumpets that are mentioned in Numbers chapter 10, the start and the finish of the church, which have nothing to do with judgment. And again, I'm getting ahead of myself. Go study Jericho if you want to get a head start. So that's the first thing we understand from this passage about the rapture living believers will escape death. So, what happens to our bodies then? Well, that's the other thing this passage tells us all of us will be transformed. We'll immediately get new bodies without experiencing death. Look at the end of verse 52. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Transformed, metamorphosized, translated. Those are different ways that you can say it, okay? We shall be transformed. For this corruptible... The word corruptible means that which is bound to disintegrate and die, and that's what this is, by the way. This is bound to disintegrate and die. It's already doing it. Uh, I mean, most of you hopefully took a shower this morning, and when you did, you were scrubbing off what? Dead cells, dead skin. That's why it stinks, because it's dead things are all over you. God bless you. This thing is, is bound to disintegrate and die. Listen, I don't care how, how much energy you've got. I don't care how much focus you've got. I'm gonna care how many good decisions you've made. I don't care how well you've lived your life. I don't care how much of an impact you have made on humanity. Eventually, this thing is going to run down. If the Lord tarries, it will run down. It will lose steam. It will run out of ammunition. And it will die. So, this idea is that's, that's what this, all this thing can do. It's bound to disintegrate and die. So this corruptible, it's necessary, necessary for it to put on incorruption, something that's not subject to death or decay. Now, those who are dead in Christ, they will put that on. They'll be raised to life but we will be transformed from this corruptible body, a thing that is bound to disintegrate and die, into an incorruptible body, not subject to death or decay. Doesn't that sound good? It says this mortal must, it is necessary for it to put on immortality. Mortal means that which will eventually die. Immortality immortality means that which will never die. Doesn't that sound good? Sounds great, especially as you get older. Sounds wonderful. Why must it put it on? First Corinthians 15, 47. Read it in our scripture reading. It says, the first man, Adam, is of the earth. He's earthy. He's made for this world. Adam's original body was made for this world. Don't believe anyone who tells you Adam could fly and do all sorts of weird things like that. His body was made for this world. It was made for this atmosphere just like yours was. The second man, the Lord, he is the Lord from heaven, all right? So as is the earthy body, such are they also that are earthy. My earthly body is meant for this world, it's meant to interact with this world. But as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. That's not where my home's going to be. My home's going to be with the Lord. So the body that will need to be there will need to be able to endure and survive and exist in the environment that is there. Verse 49, as we have borne the image of the earthy, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly, Christ's resurrection body. Now, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood, this body, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit in corruption. So, to exist in heaven, to exist with Christ forever, we need a body that's made for that atmosphere, right? So, we will be translated to that body without experiencing death. Amen? Amen. Well, to kind of sum things up as we close, the rapture is the first phase of Christ's coming in which, which he resurrects all dead believers and he transforms all living believers into their resurrection bodies. Why? For the purpose of escorting them to heaven to live with him forever, just as he promised. Now, if that doesn't sound exciting, I don't know how to excite you. I, I don't, you know, I don't. Um, you know, I, I can't even imagine. I mean, of course, this, the song was written. I can only imagine, you know? I don't, I can't, oh, I can't imagine what that will be like. What it would be like to see those, I mean, I, I've done, <laughs> I've done too many memorials. For those I knew and loved very closely, those I didn't know at all, from kids to people who lived really long lives. And all of those people, that I was able to have some part of their life and experience the pain of being separated from them, I will see them again. And Jesus' promise is the guarantee of that. Isn't that good news? It's great news. It's great news. And it's something to look forward to. Now, why is it important to look forward to the rapture? Because Paul calls it the blessed hope of the church. And to find out what that means, you gotta come back next week. So let's all stand. I realize sometimes when we get to topics that there is disagreement in the body of Christ about, it can be kind of one of those things like, oh, we're getting into you know, touchy ground. You know, when you talk about the Holy Spirit, you're like, oh, you know, who's gonna get mad today? I, I, I wanna tell you, you know, This this is not an issue of of salvation as far as it concerns like when you believe the rapture is gonna happen. I'm gonna share with you what I believe the Bible teaches, what I believe very strongly the Bible teaches. I'm gonna teach it that way. But there's nothing to be afraid of when we talk about the word of God, you know? Nothing to be afraid of at all. And when we talk about this idea that the rapture is a biblical event, the reason that Jesus taught us about it, the reason that the disciples taught us about it is because we need to understand it. So that's why I taught it to you today. Because, you know, I want us to be responding to this theology that Jesus gave us correctly, don't you? So that's our heart today. We receive your word today. You taught these things. We want to understand them correctly, and we want to be able to apply them to our lives. So, Lord, as we have understood today very clearly from your word that you made a promise to take us to be where you are, that on the basis of those promises that your own servant said, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's what we are waiting for. We are looking for you. We're not looking for antichrist. We're not looking for events to happen. We're not looking for supernatural signs in the sky. We are looking for you, Jesus, because you are our savior. You are the one we love. You are the one who rescued us. So, Lord, our desire is to be those who are firmly grounded in this concept of your return. So as we continue to study throughout the weeks, if you should tarry, Lord, Make us ready. Make us a people who are ready for your return, who are looking for you, and Lord, who are living appropriately in light of that. We love you. We thank you. Bless us as we close out our service now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.